Hey everyone, it's Abadesi, your host of Product Hunt Radio, where I'm joined by the founders, investors, and makers that are shaping the future of tech. I have such a great episode for you today. I'm joined by David Heinemeyer Hansen. He is the creator of Ruby on Rails, the co-founder and CTO at Basecamp, and author of It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, which The Economist called The Best Thing on Management, published in 2018. David agreed to do something different with this episode. We're going to talk about what you are probably doing wrong as a maker or startup leader. Drawing on advice from his book, we discuss ways of working, the advantages of distributed teams, why deadlines don't matter, and how to break out of the echo chamber to ensure your business aligns with your ethics. This is a must listen for anyone who wants to get better at building, leading, and motivating people. Of course, he also shares what products have been inspiring him lately. Enjoy. Hey, Product Hunt community. I'm so excited for this episode because I have one of my personal tech legends and really a Product Hunt tech legend. He built the framework that our entire website has been designed on and runs on. Uh, Really a man that needs no introduction. However, I will let him introduce himself. This is David Heinemeyer Hansen, uh, the creator of Ruby and Rails and the co-founder of Basecamp. But David, for folks who aren't aware of all the different hats you wear and all the things that you do, tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. As you said it, I'm the creator of Ruby on Rails, which is a web development framework that was released all the way back in 2004 when I first extracted it from the application we were building at the time, a project management system called Basecamp, which is now also the name of our company and the product and company that I've been working on for the past, what is that? 15, 16 years. Uh, The same with Ruby on Rails. Um, When I first picked up Ruby in 2003, it was a little known programming language out of Japan that didn't have a big following in the West. And I created the on Rails part that made Ruby such a sweet language to use for web development. And since then, a lot of companies and people have adopted that. It's being used by everyone from Product Hunt, as you say, to GitHub, to Shopify, uh, Hulu, just tons of uh, large uh, apps and tons of smaller apps too. I think I saw one stat saying more than a million applications have been created and launched with Ruby on Rails. And in addition to that, I also um, go on podcasts like this. I, I write books. I tweet and I blog. Uh, my most recent book is It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. The fourth book I've written together with Jason Fried, my business partner at Basecamp, about having a more calm approach to work and a less ambitious approach to business. Yes, that's incredible. It's pretty amazing how many best-selling business books you've managed to create, considering you also run a company, and also have some pretty controversial views. I think from Rework, which was published back in 2010, Changed the Way You Work Forever, to Remote office not required, the book you wrote on remote working in 2013, now all the way up to It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, published in 2018, you have always been extremely direct with what you think businesses and startups in particular, tech companies, are doing wrong and being very open about your philosophy, your strategies, your tactics, and what's actually worked at 37 Signals, at Basecamp, and actually delivered results. So I was very happy that you were game to try this approach with this episode of Product on Radio and pick up on some of those themes. In your most recent book, 
I noticed that you actually speak about a lot of things that are considered best practices and kind of turn those ideas upside down on their head. So I kind of just want to like run through some of those and get you to just speak a bit more about why you believe that's really important and hopefully inspire some of the listeners to take on some of your advice. So I wanted to start, first of all, with thinking of your company as a product. Why is that so important? Yeah, I think that's a great one. It's really a foundational idea of how we approach running Basecamp. This idea that the company itself is changeable. The policies of the company, the values of the companies are things you can tweak and you can iterate on in much the same way as you would iterate on a product. And in fact, the process is quite similar. Just like when you put a product into the market and you get feedback from customers who tell you, oh, we really like that. We don't like that so much. Can you improve this area of the business? Can you improve that area of the business? The business itself goes through that same evolution. Some of the feedback comes from employees. That's probably the most important feedback when it comes to designing how an organization should work. It should work first and foremost for the people who work there. But then, of course, it also comes back from customers because your product and your your company are more than just like, say, the software that you put out. It's also your philosophy, your marketing, as I said, your policies about everything from how you do refunds to how you treat the privacy of data, there's all these aspects of the company that can be tweaked and reconfigured. And we've done that a lot over the years. And we've really turned that into a conscious effort that we should constantly be improving the business itself, not just being improving the product. Because the business is what creates the product. So if we have a crappy business, if we have a crappy organization that doesn't run well, it doesn't serve the employees well, I think in the long term, we're going to create a crappy product as well. You can, in the short term, create a a good product with a crappy organization, but eventually it catches up to you. And it just seems so needless, too. It seems like such a waste of time to be creating products in an environment that sucks. Why would you do that? You could just make an environment that doesn't suck, especially if you actually own or lead the business. You have so much power to choose better ways of working. And I think that this is one of the reasons we're so passionate about sharing our approach to work and our approach to designing organizations is to give people, first of all, some new ideas. Maybe they hadn't thought about these ways of running a business that we've thought about, but just as much to give people permission to do things differently. And I think that that's the crux of why we put out books is because we want to push back. There's so much bullshit in especially the startup world that's being pushed by people who don't have the best interests of employees and customers or even founders in many cases. And we want to be a bulwark against that. We're going to push back against that. And we want to share our perspective on how you can actually serve those constituents in a way that may not make the most intuitive sense at first glance from just a purely business perspective, but on a long timescale and on a humanistic timescale, it makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, definitely. I really like what you said about that because you have spoken very openly about how important it is for founders to keep control of their company. It's the control that you and Jason have that's allowed you to be agile and adapt and you know build this global community of both customers and team. And I'm just curious for you to maybe just like share a bit more around that. This ability to think of a company like a product, respond, change, adapt. Does that become hindered when you're not in full control? Absolutely. And it's not even so much whether you're in full control or not in the, can I actually do this? Because I think it's far more insidious than that. I think a lot of companies end up in 
bad ways, not because they're overtly forced to act in those bad ways by, say, a boogeyman investor, but because the environment that they're in, the echo chamber that they're listening to is corrupting their essentially morals and ethics and to an extent where they think, well, we're actually doing the right thing, that they don't even see the error of some of the policies or the ways that they're treating uh, employees or the way that they're treating customers or data as something that they're doing wrong, that this is just business, that this is just how it is. So they accept the world as it is from this very particular vantage point that if you looked at it from a different angle, you'd go like, that's not right. That's not kind. It's not good. It's not an improvement. It's not the kind of dent you want to leave in the universe. And so we try to sort of force people through direct language, direct challenges to switch their vantage point, see things from a different perspective. And when they do, I think that's where you're opening people's mind to, oh, actually, maybe we could do things differently. Just because all the companies in the Valley do things like this, or they're hiring at this certain rate or whatever they're doing to blow the money that they've raised as quickly as possible, doesn't mean that we have to follow in those footsteps. But that luxury absolutely does come in our case from not being a physically close to those um, extremely powerful eco chambers. Basecamp was unique in its founding, not just because of kind of how we did it or the technology we used, but also from where it was founded. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark when we got started. Jason was in Chicago. We've never had an outpost in, say, San Francisco or New York or any of these other tech hubs. So the tech hub draw and an ego chamber really didn't have much of an effect on us, which led us with the luxury of going through things from first principles without being corrupted by these incredibly powerful and incredibly persuasive engines of thought that emanate from these uh, tech hubs. And I think that we then feel it as our obligation to go, those were just our circumstances when we got started. It wasn't sort of a conscious choice. Oh, let's be based in Denmark and in Chicago because that's really a great place to build a company. No, that was just where we were. So those were just our circumstances. What we've still, what we've come to realize later on is that those circumstances were really powerful in terms of driving the way we saw the world. And that we now have an obligation to share that luxury with other people who, who didn't have it. Um, which is kind of, as you say, a, a bit about spinning it on its head. A lot of people think about uh, it, it, the, the best thing in the world if your tech company is to be in a tech hub because you have access to all this talent and you have access to all this money and you have access to all these contacts. Yeah, maybe true. But you also get suffocated by all those same things at the same time. And that suffocation is a lot more insidious and hidden than the benefits are. And we need to challenge those drawbacks head on. Amazing. I really feel like you and Jason's voices, which have been saying this for so many years now, have inspired the trend of founders that I'm keeping tabs on now a few years into their startup journey. I'm thinking of people like Ryan of Product Hunt, Sahil of Gumroad, founders who in recent years have spoken up very openly about their very conscious and mindful decision to leave San Francisco. In a previous episode of the of the show, Sahil spoke about the exact same thing you're talking about, which is like the toxic side of being immersed in that culture and how narrow-minded it makes you and how transactional relationships become and, you know, the personal impact that had on him. 
Ryan recently relocated to LA. He shared an update on Twitter and a very long thread, but he also said that, you know, he was excited about the opportunity to change his environment and see how that, you know, new experience could impact his product. So I really hope that we do see, you know, more fragmentation and just like more wide distribution of of where people are starting out, which is awesome. One of the things I kind of wanted to dive a bit deeper into is um, these sort of um, ideological fallacies that you always sort of point out. So in the most recent book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, you talk about this analogy of like the battlefield, you know, startup founders buy into these ideas that, you know, it's a war zone. I, I even think of that Peter Thiel book that everyone always raves about, you know, you know, zero to one. It's like, you have to dominate. Otherwise, there's no point being in business. And what I liked in that chapter of the book is that you kind of talk about you and Jason being more like pacifists, you know, where you're just focused on your own business and not out to kill your competitor. Could you just elaborate a bit more on that? Because so many people are stuck in that war zone ideology and you're clearly not. <laughs> so yeah, tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it's it's a great example of how much language and framing ends up uh, dictating your thoughts and dictating not just your thoughts, but then how you go about business. It's so much easier to excuse bad practices if you think you're at war, if you think that this is survival, that you are literally going to be killed unless you do worse than your competition. I think uh, the example that always comes to mind for me with this is, is Uber. So Uber has probably racked up the greatest list of transgressions of any major unicorn startups that I can remember. If you, if you do an index search on Uber scandals, it usually is a couple of pages long and it just covers a few years. And you go, how does a company end up so morally bankrupt as to be involved with so many scandals at the same time? These are not independent, isolated incidents. They're absolutely founded on an ideology that anything goes. And that ideology is often tied explicitly into the war uh, metaphor, right? We're at war with regulators, we're at war with competitors. So sabotage or espionage or any of these other warlike tactics, they're totally kosher. This is totally cool because this is what we have to do to dominate. And that's where even the goal, I think, needs to be knocked down. That, as you say, with this binary, literally binary distinction, as uh, Peter Thiel posits with zero to one, right? Like either you're zero or, or you're one. It's a really depressing way of viewing the world. It's a really binary, black and white way of viewing the world and viewing business and viewing a measure of success that the only way your success is if you have crushed everything else and captured everyone else. That is just, I think, on the face of it, thoroughly inhumane in its most literal sense. And why are we inspiring startup founders and, and under other entrepreneurs to aspire to this. This seems a path to a really bad society. Not the least if you just take it on its pure merits that there will be a tiny handful of monopolistic winners who will sit with everything and dictate everything for, for the rest of us. Is is that a place we want to live? And and if so, why? It to me just sounds like complete dystopia. And we're actually already living that in in many parts of the business, right? 
technology is dominated by these huge monopolistic big tech corporations who now, thankfully, been shown over the past, uh, let's say, three or four years to not be quite as benevolent as perhaps we or some thought that they were at the time. And I think that this is part of the change in the conversation that's really healthy, that we've gone from everyone thinking the greatest thing in the world would be to be Mark Zuckerberg and to have Facebook, to I would probably say far more people now are thinking, actually, A, I don't want Facebook. I don't want Facebook's problems. See, I don't want to be Mark Zuckerberg. Like That doesn't sound like a calm, nice existence. Yes, maybe he is a billionaire. But if you think of sort of the stresses and, and the impact and the harm and the responsibility and the shame that he must sit with for what he has inflicted upon the world, you'd go like, why would I want that? So I think if we can start by having a takedown of the past uh, idols we can start building up some healthier models of what we should try to emulate instead. And that emulation, A, shouldn't be, I want to be king instead of the king. That maybe the emulation should be, we shouldn't have a king. That we should abolish the royalty setup, the monopolistic big tech setup, and not just all aspire to be one of a tiny cabal of people who control the world. That we could instead inspire to be part of a larger community and society where we all have a stake in it. We all have some power, but not overwhelming power. We don't have the power to dictate markets. We don't have the power to dictate customers. We simply have to compete in the most gentle sense of the word by saying, I'm putting the best product I know how to build on the market some customers are going to respond to them, not all of them. And the customers who do respond are authentically choosing out of their own free will. They're not being killed. They're not being forced through ecosystem lock-in. They're not being otherwise pushed or forced into using our software. They're simply using our software because they want to. So that's what we try to do at Basecamp. We try to simply just build the best system that we know how, put it on the market, and then appeal to a small but uh, sustainable group of customers who want to pay us on a monthly basis to use a nice product. It really doesn't have to be that complicated. And I think once you've knocked down the false aspirations and the false idols of a previous era of uh, monopolistic tech being this great thing, you'll start to recognize the beauty of small, the beauty of medium-sized. Another uh, touch point we have for this is that small is not a stepping stone. There's nothing to apologize for, for having a company of 10 people or 20 people or 50 people or 100 people. It is not just a, a, a station on the road to becoming a company of 10,000. It is actually a wonderful destination in and of itself. And for the vast majority of companies, they should be happy being there forever. That this obsession with growth, this obsession with all growth all of the time until you've run out of things to grow through, that's the ideology of cancer, not the ideology of sound, healthy business uh, approaches. And, and I think we need to eradicate that in, in some extent, at least as the dominant uh, ideology. There'll always be people who want to be, well, I want to be king instead of the king. Well, okay, fine. That's fine. It should, just shouldn't be all of us. 
there should be far more uh, aspirations and paths open to entrepreneurs and to companies to pursue in full harmony with themselves, where they don't feel bad about where they are. They don't feel bad about only being a $10 million a year company. They don't feel bad about not living up to whatever ideals for uh, a slam dunk one hit it out of the park unicorn success that the venture capital pipeline uh, kind of tries to get you to buy into. Yeah. It's it's so fascinating what you say. And like, you know, speaking to founders at all stages of the journey from, you know, super, super early, still bootstrapping or maybe pre-seed trying to go for venture funding to much later, like what I realize is, and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on this. Very few founders, even who like agree with these ideas of like building a sustainable business or, you know, just keeping <laughs> morals and ethics like somewhere close to the core and not trying to exploit people in the pure pursuit of growth and profit. It, it feels like as soon as they start to put that, um, you know, core principle at the front of everything they do, they almost get pigeonholed into being, you know, tech for good or or social impact, as if there's some kind of mutually exclusive relationship between being ethically conscious and wanting to make money. And I'm just curious whether that's something that you observe also and why you think that might be. I absolutely observe that. And it's not just tech for good. The other pigeonhole that we got thrown at us uh, time and time again was this idea of a lifestyle business. That if you are trying to make a nice place to work where employees actually enjoy coming and enjoy going home from at a reasonable hour, all you're trying to do is a lifestyle business, which is just such other patronizing bullshit. And it serves a very specific narrative that the people who provide funding for startups are invested literally in upholding. And the narrative is that unless you throw everything of yourself, of your soul, of your conscience, of your employees, of your customers' privacy into the grinder for success, you're going to fail. And there's nothing worse than uh, failing, uh, well, perhaps there's one thing that's worth than failing, which is to just build a, a small business. Uh, I've heard the term uh, a zombie company, which is basically a company that, that reached a certain level of success that was not high enough for the uh, funding sources to consider it as a slam dunk. And now they're stuck with this inconvenient business that just happens to serve uh, a number of customers in a, in a decent way, but is not growing explosively. Just the whole vernacular, the whole dictionary of terms that's being used in venture capital funding and venture capital thinking is just bankrupt. And I think that that's why we're trying to be so direct in our pushback is because most of these terms have simply been taken for granted. Everything from unicorn companies, like I used to think of unicorns as these beautiful, white, pure creatures that just happen to have a horn and a, and a lovely, fluffy tail, right? Now unicorns, in my mind, have turned into these dark horses with like flaming red eyes that spew fire and acid because that's actually how a lot of unicorn companies operate, right? Spewing fire and acid. Um, that's not a good image. Like you took a nice comforting term, a unicorn or concept, and you turned it into this nasty thing. The same thing with uh, the rest of it. Angel funders? Come on. 
Could you be more self-grandizing than calling yourself a fucking angel because you invest a, a sum of money into a company and you expect it to become a unicorn or die? I think there's just so much projection going on in these terms where this is how the people who wield these terms want to be seen. Well, we're under no obligation to accept their definition of these terms. In fact, it is our obligation to critically examine whether these things are true and if they're not true, to push back against them. So I think part of this is the um, balance of power, at least for a long time, was just off. It was often the sense that the people with the money got to tell the people who didn't have the money how to operate and how to think, more importantly. Now, some of that is changing in some regards. I think in in kind of perverted ways uh, at some end of the spectrum, like what's going on with we, what the fuck. And then in other ways, in more healthy ways, I'd say at the, at the start of the, of the funnel that a people are realizing, well, maybe I don't want to raise money at all. That's been the model we've been promoting for two decades is that you don't have to raise money. You can also self-fund in all sorts of ways. We did it through consulting. Um, You can do it through all sorts of other means uh, where you can bootstrap. And then also you can start raising money from uh, sources that aren't on these venture capitalist trajectories. Um, There's now a a whole host of funds like Tiny Seed and others, uh, Ernest Capital, who allow you to raise a smaller sum of money and and don't expect you to become a unicorn or die, that they actually um, sort of schedule their funding in such a way that you can pay them back and you can pay them out of the business and you can continue creating a business that you own that has a certain size that feels comfortable to you that's a size beneath behemoth. Hey, this is Abadesi, and I want to tell you about a new tech news podcast from Recode called Reset. It's hosted by Arielle Duem-Ross, former science reporter for The Verge and the first climate change correspondent on American nightly TV news for Vice News Tonight. Every Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, Arielle will explore the unexpected ways technology impacts our everyday lives and how tech is fundamentally changing our humanity. From authors using artificial intelligence to write novels, to biohackers altering their own DNA, and hate groups using cryptocurrency to fund terrorism. These days, every story is a new story, and Reset is going to show you why. The first episode of Reset is available now. Subscribe to Reset for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. That is really powerful. I think, you know, when people say like knowledge is power and you think like, oh, you know, what does that really mean? In in so many ways, like the reason founders have been able to not get trapped down that sort of one way do or die system of venture capital is that information about other sources of financing is becoming more readily available, but also information about the dark side of VC is also becoming more available as we allow vulnerability to enter society a bit more and also create space for leaders, tech founders, and people who've been in that system to speak honestly and openly, whether it's on the personal blog or through a Twitter thread about what they wish they did differently. And a lot of the time, there have been some very well-known cases of founders who wish they hadn't taken 
venture capital funding, um, stories of founders trying to buy it back. And then, of course, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, these amazing success stories like Ben Chestnut at MailChimp, who build, you know, unicorn companies without, without venture after all. But I think, you know, you make that point so well. It's about the type of company that you as a founder want to create and not everyone wants to be some monolithic market dominating company at whatever cost. I think there are more and more people that want to have an authentic experience with their customers because that's based on the delightful experiences they have as customers. And that's one of the things that we try to do, I think in the product and community, like make it as inclusive as possible, regardless of the type of maker you are or aspire to be. And then it's also wonderful to have other communities, you know, like indie hackers out there where people who are bootstrapping speak very transparently about how they've been able to grow or scale their business or just stay, you know, wherever they are. Um, And I do think we need to see more of that. And if I had to take, you know, one thing away from what you've shared in that those last minutes was how we should always be willing to criticize whatever information we see or whatever philosophy is being shared with us and just try to understand if that really resonates with you know the values of the company as they stated them out or whether that resonates with our priorities or our values ourselves and the reason why i say that is cuz i kind of wanted to go into one of the next themes in your latest book and that's this idea of your company not being your family as someone that's worked in the tech industry a bunch of different companies from Groupon to Amazon to Product Hunt, I have certainly been a victim of environments where you just, you know, sip from the Kool-Aid a bit too much and find yourself burning out and realize that the people you've seen the most for the last months have been your line manager and your colleagues and all of your personal relationships have completely deteriorated and you haven't been to the gym and who knows how long and you can't remember the last time you did anything for yourself. So I just wanted you to just talk a bit more basically about like the downsides of of leaders who are trying to, you know, build a cult or a family instead of building a company and and why you decided to not take that approach with yours. Sure. I think it's a important topic because it goes directly to the source of power and who benefits the most. When you have leaders um, singing the praises of working 80, 100, or in some pathological cases, 120 hours a week, especially under the guise of, well, we're just all doing this to succeed together. It's really so self-serving. When you take someone like uh, Marissa Mayer, let's just take her as an example, since she was the one with the 120-hour, 130-hour quote that, well, you can work 120 hours a week if you're strategic with your bathroom breaks, that that was sort of taken at face value as a reasonable approach to how to squeeze out more productivity, just hold it in. Then you go, like, actually, if she encourages all the people she had working under her at Yahoo to do that, who wins in the, in the end when they're squeezed or they've held it in and they ended up with UTIs or whatever bladder issues you get from trying to uh, not leave your desk from 120 hours a week? Who wins? Uh, who gets the golden parachute? Well, I mean, it's sort of in the question, right? Marisa Mayer does. And I'm just taking her as an example because she was using this ridiculous uh, aspirational quote. as like, this is possible. We can do this. What kind of life is that? Even if that was sort of authentically what she wanted to do. If, if you look back uh, just 30, 40 years, like uh, to the 80s, and you talk to executives and, and you were talking to them and you're like, hey, is your dream being essentially trapped in the office, your bathroom breaks curtailed, you have to be there every waking hour, every 
weekend, they would look at you like, what are you talking about, slaves here? Like, why would I want to put myself in a slave-like situation where I have no control over my own autonomy or my time or my relationships or my physical composure? That sounds completely dystopian, but somehow we've managed to turn it into this heroic thing that is actually good. No, no, no. Actually, it's really good if you just spend 120 hours a week and it's really good if you hold it in and if you just don't see anyone outside of the office. No, this is really a good thing. I mean, how corrupt is that at its at its core? And who is it serving? If you get a, a company of 5,000 people to do that, there's a small handful of people who will benefit tremendously if that somehow led to higher performance, which, by the way, I don't even think it does. I don't even think it, it works on the face of it, that humans are built in such a way that you can squeeze out productivity and creativity to the last drop on an hourly basis like that. And then I think we should take a step back and think, why are we doing this? Why are we building these products? Why do we work and go, well, uh, we want creative stimulation. We want to put something good into the world. We want to do all these things. Yes, that's one of the things we want to do. The other thing we want to do is we want to live through our 20s. We want to live through our 30s. We want to live through our 40s as though they were decades of life filled with something else than just the endless grind and the endless business. Because if there's something that's going to be bring this ultimate sense of regret, it's not that, oh, my company failed because I didn't work 120 hours. It's what happened to the past two decades of my life? Like when you sit back in your rocking chair, even if you got this magical outcome that rarely happens where you actually are a success and you end up a millionaire and and you sit at the end and you go like, was this all worth it? I'm firmly of the belief that uh, a lot of people will go, no, it was not worth it. I would rather have failed or succeeded modestly and had some time to develop human relationships, other interests, not decomposing my body in an air on chair. There's all these aspects of life that are available. And we live in this glorious, prosperous age, especially in the tech industry, where we should have more time than ever to ourselves, to think, to be away from just a computer. Wasn't this whole purpose of the computer and everything we've been building for the past two, three, four decades, that we were increasing productivity, that we were going to be more efficient, that we were going to be less tied and chained to a, a desk in an open office all day long? If if that was the premise, well, I, I don't see I don't see the fruits. I, I see we've only gotten worse, and it seems to be acceleratingly getting worse. Even if there's a blip in the other direction right now, we're still stuck with absolutely draconian patterns of work. Not only the long hours, but also the, the patterns of work like the open office, which is just an affront to everyone's concentration and creativity. But we just take it for granted that, oh, that'll, quote unquote, increase collaboration, even though there's numerous uh, academic studies showing it does no such thing. It actually leads people to get more insular and more isolated. And there's an endless body of academic research showing that it does absolute horrors to your productivity and your creativity. But we keep on doing it. Why? Because it's economically expedient and it fits within this pattern of like, we're just all in it together. We're a platoon here fighting the enemy and and we need all hands on deck. Like that was literally, by the way, I, I hate to pick on Marissa Mayer in this case, but the all hands on deck when she canceled uh, Yahoo's remote work policy was literally the quote, right? 
can you get more trite? Can you get more banal than that? No, no, we can't have remote work. We, we can't have, uh, we can't do any individual assessment of whether workers are doing good work or bad work when they're working remotely. We just need all hands on deck. It's so base in a way that just really offends me to the core. And it offends me to the core because it's so utterly unnecessary. All these prosperous companies and this prosperous industry we're in do not need to do any of this shit. We can live such better, fuller, richer lives if we just stop believing that uh, the most worthy thing we can do is to give every waking hour and moment to the business. That that's actually not good for business, even for business itself. If you were just thinking, well, I just want to get the most efficient business here, you would not come up with this regime of chaining people to the office or shaming them even worse, right? Like it's not overt change. It's uh, these uh, shaming techniques of like, what, are you going home already? Like, I didn't see you on Saturday. All this bullshit that people used to uh, uh, guilt trip people into, into staying at the office. If we just look back through just a little, the industrialization. Uh, Henry Ford, in 1920, when he was setting up the Model T production lines, realized not necessarily out of the goodness of his heart, but through sort of managerial observation principles, that if he forced his workers to work more than 40 hours a week banging Model T cars together, it didn't work. He got more defects. He got more errors. There were more returns. It was not a cost-efficient or expedient way of building a goddamn car. Do you think it's then an expedient way of building intricate layers of complicated software? What? This makes no fucking sense. And it's completely ahistorical. It's completely anti-science. It's just, yeah, it riles me up. I, th- I think you're so right to be angry about it because it is one of those approaches that keeps being refuted by research and yet dominates and yet continues to remain. And as someone that has been on both sides of the table in startup environments as an individual contributor, as a team leader, I've I've seen it happen, particularly in times of stress, where the decision to optimize for distrust and optimize for the least productive person suddenly becomes the status quo for the entire team and the entire company. And it is nonsensical. And as an industry that prides itself on being innovative and at the forefront of change and you know, making efforts to be inclusive, it just doesn't make sense. Like those concepts don't um, align. If anything, they're contradictory. So I think you're quite right to speak so passionately about that because I'm very conscious of time and I feel like I could talk to you forever. There's like one thing in particular um, that I wanted to make sure we cover. And that's basically how you approach deadlines at Basecamp and also how you approach presentations. So almost every role that I've been in, every type of company I've worked at, we've had projects as a team and we've had some kind of hard deadline. The project's scope is expanded and expanded and expanded. And before you know it, you know, you're delaying projects by weeks, by quarters, et cetera. I know you have a very different approach at Basecamp. So I'm curious to hear about that. And I also want to hear about why you don't really do presentations. <laughs> yes. Great topics. I think the issue with deadlines is, you alluded to in your question already, is that they're not fair in the most basic sense of the word. They're not about, here's a specific confined amount of work that we can clearly see from all angles and we can reasonably estimate how long all of it will take. And then we'll say it'll be done on this date. And if it's not done on that date, it's not because we miss. Uh, understood the problem. It's not because we 
uh, had some faulty assumptions. No, it's a moral failure on the part of the person who did not fulfill the deadline. They signed up. We got to have some accountability here. Like all that kind of bullshit that people dredge out to to support deadlines. It just gets repeated over and over again. What we do at Basecamp is what we try to do sometimes with varying levels of success. But as a general principle, we don't look at deadlines as something you stick on a fixed body of work. What we like to do instead is have budgets. So we will say, we're working on this new feature. There's a version of this new feature that can be done in, let's say, six weeks. It's not the most grandiose version of the feature. It's not the one with the most uh, bells and whistles on it. It won't have considered all edge cases, but there's a decent, good version of this feature that can be built in six weeks that we would be proud of. Then we set people to work to figure out what that scope is. Don't try to specify everything up front of like, this is exactly what it has to look like. This is exactly how it has to work. Because this is, that's how you end up with this endless pressure of being up against the deadline on unfair terms. If you set a budget and say, we just want a feature shipped within six weeks on this, there's all this room for creativity, for cutting the scope, for judoing the problem where a team can work in a reasonable 40 hours or less per week mode, not feel overly stressed at the end and still ship good software or still ship a good product, whatever product it is that you're doing. But that requires you to A, trust the people that you're working with, trust that they will make good decisions, trust that we're all on the same mission here of trying to create good software for people and then trust that you'll get another chance to revisit this in the future if you have to. But what we find is that most of the time, work expands to fill the time available. So you just have to make sure that, that uh, the work itself is this, is this uh, cloud that you can massage into different shapes and forms that is not this fixed, immovable uh, shape that you then have to stress out about at the end of a deadline when invariably it wasn't just the fixed shape. It was the fixed shape plus all the other shit that people thought they were so clever about coming up with halfway through the, through the product. So... Our approach is budgets treated as this is how much time you have to spend, but what you spend it on is variable. You cannot fix time, scope, and the number of people who work on it and succeed. It has just been disproven a million times over in the past hundred years of plus of project management that that is simply a flawed model of product and software development, and you should let it go. So... At Basecamp, we don't do the daily stand-up, which is a common technique that a lot of software development companies use where everyone stands up and they say, this is what I've been working on. These are the problems I've been wrestling with. And then you go on to the next person and you have basically this, this ring of status updates. We don't do the big presentations in person either, where we go like, hey, this is what everyone has been working on. Here's the progress where we're at so far. We simply see that as a as a waste of synchronous time, which should be a very scarce resource. The amount of times where you need people to show up at the same well place, if you're in a same physical location, but uh, in the same chat room or in, on the same video call or phone call or whatever, should be at an absolute minimum. It's a very inefficient way of communication. It's a very disruptive way of communication. When you're saying, well, we're going to have a presentation at 10 o'clock, Whoever shows up to the office at nine, what do you think they're going to work on for that hour? 
absolutely fucking nothing. That's what they're going to work on because no one is going to dive into a deep creative problem if they only have an hour or 45 minutes to do so. They're going to simply check their email, surf the web, do all this other shit where they end up just wasting an hour until it's time for the presentation, until it's time for the status update. Then they're going to spend... I don't know, an hour, usually an hour, because that's how long we booked the conference room. So, of course, it just fits for an hour. And then after that, ah, geez, there's only an hour left until lunch. Eh, let's just surf the internet some more. Let's write some more emails. Then let's have lunch. And then maybe there's another presentation or meeting again at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. How much deep creative thinking do you think happened that day? None. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work to constantly puncture and slice up the day. So you should be extremely cautious about when you put things on many people's calendar. What we do instead is we encourage people to share where they are in an asynchronous way where someone can choose to digest that and respond to that on their time. So someone who shows up at the office at nine, they may take the first half hour of the day or 40 minutes of the day to read those updates from yesterday, respond to those, and then have the rest of the glorious day to themselves. Or they may choose that like right at nine o'clock, they dive straight into the work. And then at the end of the day or over lunch or after lunch is when they take the time to catch up with everyone else. When you allow people control over their own schedule, you allow them contiguous hours that can be used to do this deep creative work that we all want to do. This is the kind of work that leads to happy people, happy employees. No one wants to look back on a week spent in a handful of meetings and think, actually, what did I get done this week? I I can't even put a finger on it. I guess I met with some people. I guess I shared some opinions. And it's not that those things are useless or, or without value. It's just that that's not enough. Most creative people I know, whether they're writers or, or product managers or programmers or designers, they want to make things. They want to create things. That's why they got into this profession in the first place. And if they're deprived from that, if they're deprived from the glory and satisfaction of actually making things and posting true progress on a week-by-week -week basis, they end up miserable, simply speaking. And I think that is a key factor of, of the retention that we have at Basecamp, where so many people have stayed at Basecamp for so long, is because we allow people to actually do the work. And as bizarre as that sounds, that is not nearly as common as you would like to believe that it should be, that so many people are trapped wanting to do great work, but having their weeks and their days sliced up and cut into these tiny little work moments where they can't actually do the work that they are inspired by. And that's just miserable for everyone. It's not productive. And that's why we try to avoid uh, presentations. Is why we try to avoid meetings. It's not a binary thing against. It's not like, oh, all meetings are bad at all times and you should never do them. I mean, come on. That's stupid, right? Sometimes a meeting is the right thing. And the, a meeting is the right thing when you need a small handful of people to deliberate in unity over a hard issue that couldn't be settled otherwise. The meeting, it's the meeting of last resort. When we have no other ways of coming to terms on this and moving forward, hey, let's have a meeting. And that's fine. I have a couple of meetings a week. And some of the times, at least, I think that those are times well spent. 
but I would be absolutely miserable if I had the same schedule that I keep hearing from a lot of peers in my industry, especially at the executive level, where they talk about their week and their week is just one long string of meetings after meetings after meetings. That sounds to me like a version of hell. Yes. I think what I see as a core theme in companies like yours where, you know, you have really good retention and like average tenure is actually like pretty long. I'm talking like multi years, which is almost like unheard of in the tech world where people are like jumping ship every like 12 to 18 months because they're burnt out, miserable, disillusioned or unhappy is a faith in humanity. I feel like when I speak to people who have just like found themselves in environments where they're not thriving, it's because there is like ultimately a lack of trust running through the culture where people are constantly being questioned for every decision or not being given the space or the autonomy to thrive. And I feel that so many people respond positively to independence, autonomy, or flexibility in the widest sense of the word, not just flexible working, but flexibility in approaches to how we collaborate as a team, how we communicate as a team, how we share information, et cetera. And I I do hope that we are moving towards a place where people are putting more faith in individuals and human beings to just get on with stuff uh, and and really just have, have trust, right? Like, would you say that ultimately leaders just need to like trust that they've picked good people and then let them get on with it? That's a huge part of it. And I think you summarized the three main tenets of uh, a wonderful book called Drive by Daniel Pink that examines motivation in the workforce. And he sums it down to basically three things, that it's autonomy, mastery, and purpose. These are the things that make people motivated at work. And if you're curbing or crimping any of those three pillars, you're going to end up with unhappy employees. And I think that that is exactly what's happening in a lot of places. And the other thing that's happening is this misconception that people are either born superstars, 10x programmers, as uh, some like to call it, or they're not. And it is the job of the executive simply to find the superstars And then they just can put them in whatever miserable working environments that they have, and they will still excel. That is not how it works. The way that people excel and do wonderful work is by being supported by a wonderful environment. And there is a legion of potential superstars sitting out there right now doing miserable, crappy work because they work in a miserable, crappy environment. And I think that that's really the tragedy of this. When you see and think of superstars as these innate traits or profiles that you have to unearth like they were diamonds that you can find rather than beautiful trees that you can grow, you missed the point and you missed the boat. And I think that this is really where we do need that reset of thinking as in more human terms, as humans as someone who are capable of thriving and growing and that some people thrive and grow in certain environments and and not in ours or others. And you can't necessarily transplant one from one to the other. And sometimes you can liberate someone who's stuck in a bad environment by putting them in a different one and and they do wonderful work. This is one of the reasons that we are so big on remote work, that the world is full of amazing people. It is simply not a credible concept that all the great people in technology just happen to 
live in San Francisco? Want to move to San Francisco? Live in New York? Want to move to New York? No. We found all these amazing people all over the rest of the globe and companies who are decrying, oh, we can't find someone to hire. It's so hard to hire. No, it's not. Your company probably just sucks or doesn't allow remote. Fix either of those two things. And there's a billion people out there waiting to do a great job. We've just gone through hiring uh, five people, which is quite rare for Basecamp. But in all cases, we had hundreds of applicants. In some cases, we had thousands of applicants to these roles. There are plenty of people out there. Uh, but people are smart. They can smell a shitty environment. And if you're having trouble hiring, it's probably because you have a shitty environment or you're casting your circle too narrowly of who you want to hire and where you want to hire for. Fix those two problems and you fix your hiring issues. Agreed. Um, I, I could probably do a whole another episode on the whole talent pool, talent pipeline fake problem as I see it because um, I know so many talented people across the industry, across the world who would love to be placed in, uh, you know, a well-matched opportunity. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if, if you're struggling to find people, it's the problem is almost certainly with you or, or something that is connected to your organization. So David, I am very conscious of your time. I feel like I could have you here all day, but as we're sort of coming to the end of this amazing interview, which has not disappointed at all, it's just been everything I wanted it to be and more. I kind of wish we could do more of this. Being the Product Hunt podcast, I cannot let you go without hearing about the products that you love. These might be the apps on your home screen. These might be things that you tinker with at home or in your own personal time. But yeah, share with the community you know, what you're really into right now. Sure. I think coming off this theme of creating a healthy environment, I'll, I'll go with some health tips because uh, one of the parts that I find uh, just so infuriating is the number of people who are like, oh, we need to get people to work longer hours rather than think, how can we get the hours that we do have them for work better? And I think there's a, a number of factors in that. Let's start with sleep. So uh, I'll pair this um, recommendation in two things. There's a book. It's called Why We Sleep, which is detailed in meticulous, academic, yet immensely readable style, why sleep is so important. And if you're getting less than eight hours a night consistently, you're doing it wrong and you're doing yourself a grave injustice. You're destroying your cognitive abilities. You're destroying your ability to think clearly, empathetically, and creatively. So that's the argument for why you should sleep. Then the follow-up to that is called the Aura Ring, which tracks uh, how you sleep and tracks uh, night by night how much sleep you get and what quality that sleep is of. And if you pair those two things together, a irrefutable line of evidence for why you should sleep more than eight hours a night with a tracking device that tells you exactly, A, how long you've been sleeping and what quality that sleep is, you're going to end up with better sleep. And that is one of those superpowers that it baffles me that there are not more people, particularly in the tech community, that are so dependent on creative thought that they, they haven't unlocked. Like That seems like the lowest hanging fruit. If you think you can sleep six and a half or seven hours every night and still operate at your peak, you're delusional. And um, I'd love to uh, disabuse you of that uh, delusion. The second one I, I'd recommend is, is to get uh, and breathe clean air. There's been a really fascinating amount of studies done in just the last 10 years of the cognitive challenges you'll face if you don't get fresh air. 
And fresh air is mostly defined in the CO2 concentration in the air you're sitting in. So if you're sitting in a big open office that is not sufficiently ventilated, which is often the case, it is true also of coffee shops and all sorts of other commercial buildings, you may be simply dumbing yourself down, losing literal IQ blocks, and you can track these things. So there's a, a nice little gadget called the Aware that um, tracks the amount of CO2 in the air, along with other things like uh, particle matter and uh, volatile uh, chemicals, which is wonderful for just getting a sense of like, how good is my air? And then you can back that up with... Um, we're reading some of these studies on CO2 concentration and what that does for creative abilities. And I'm sure you'll think, oh, I need to get better air. For me, it has also led to um, wanting to get cleaner air, not just fresher air. The fresh air is what is your CO2 concentration. The clean air is how many particles are in the air. And I found another product that I love. It's called the Breathe Smart. It's this uh, air purifier, basically that you pair those two things together. You have the Aware to measure the quality of your air. You make sure you get proper ventilation and you have a Breathe Smart to clean the air and you'll end up with fresh, clean air that will absolutely do wonders for your concentration and your creativity. So take those two together, get plenty of sleep, breathe clean air, and uh, I'd be very surprised if you're not going to see a material jump in your personal, well, life satisfaction, creativity, and all the other good things that everyone wants more of. Yeah, that's incredible. It's really, really great advice. And, you know, just echoing what you said about sleep, I have so many friends in the tech world that are obsessed with biohacking. You know, they're trying intermittent fasting, paleo diet, whatever kind of trends and fads are microdosing, LSD, blah, blah, blah. But they're not sleeping enough. And I just often like laugh at them because I'm like, you know, maybe if you just got eight hours, you would actually get through the day consistently. Um, so, yeah, I think it's always a really helpful reminder to have that. And I'm definitely going to check out the other products that you said, especially that point around like clean air. Many of us are working in, you know, super congested city centers, locked up all day, hardly going out into, you know, the outside world, let alone venturing to the outskirts and actually getting into nature. So being reminded to just kind of go back to basics and remember what keeps our biology at its most productive is incredibly helpful. David, thank you so much for everything you've shared with us today. For people who are listening and want to find out more or how they can reach you, read more about your work, even play around with your product, where's the best place for them to go? Sure. As we talked about, uh, my life's work is Basecamp. That's Basecamp.com. It's one application to keep everything tied together. Uh, you don't need a mismatch of uh, Dropbox and Trello and Slack and whatever. Basecamp has all of it. It's also where you'll find a list of our books, basecamp.com slash books. That's really where the distillation of all our best advice over the years has come from. You mentioned uh, a couple of them. We have a new book out now, too, that's also available on that site. That's all for free. It's called Shape Up. And it talks all about how we actually develop software all the way down to the nitty gritty it has more on the concept of budgets rather than deadlines. And I think uh, anyone who's building software could benefit from having their mind challenged there. I'm also, at times, regrettably, on Twitter, at DHH. And you can find me there. I, I don't always love my Twitter, and I write it myself. So I say that with uh, some fair warning label. I feel like it's, it's almost like cigarette packs, that there should be like a, a picture of like a lung that's all black, that that's how your mind can sometimes end up if you uh, listen too much or read too much Twitter, including my Twitter feed, which, again, fair warning, is overly negative. So you have to dilute it 
properly with um, hopefully pictures of cat pics or, or unicorns or something else to brighten up your day. If you just listen to my Twitter feed all day long, you'll just end up depressed. So I guess that's the fair warning. And then finally, uh, I appear on the our Basecamp podcast. It's called Rework.fm. So Rework.fm is where you can find our podcast. We talk about shape up. We talk about how we run a business. I think your listeners would uh, enjoy that as well. That's amazing. Once again, thank you so much for your time. And I I will plug Twitter because I love you on Twitter, even though you're negative, because it's just such a great critical lens. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into Product Hunt Radio. I've got a favor to ask you. Will you take a minute to review us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to us right now? Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week. But in the meantime, share the podcast with your friends on Twitter and tag a guest you'd like to hear in a future episode. See you soon.